Good morning. It's great to have you here today. We're in a series of messages called Honest to God. Because the book of Psalms is all about being honest with God and how you process that. It's not always easy, and the book of Psalms reflects that in some of its heart-wrenching emotion and difficult things that the psalmists work their way through. Today we're looking at Psalm 73, and it's written by a guy named Asaph, who was also a worship leader like David, and we'll talk more about him in a minute, but it's, it's dealing with things of the soul. Uh, that's your inner life. One time Jesus asked a question to a group of people, and he said, what good is it if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul? I mean, isn't that what you came to church for? Pay attention to your soul. Isn't that what Jesus is saying by that question? He's implying that you better pay attention to your soul. Because you could gain all kinds of things, but if you lose that, you lost everything. Isn't that why we look read the Psalms? Isn't that why I preach on it? So I'm going to pray for you right now that God would help you deal with things on a soulish level. Your inner life includes your thoughts, your motives, your heart, your attitudes, everything. Jesus warns, if you don't pay attention to it, you'll lose it, no matter what you gain. So I'd like to pray. Dear God, would you help the folks here, myself as well, pay attention to our soul? Would you help all of us guys to be able to see things, hear things, understand things, look at things like you? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon today is about um, what you do when things don't seem to be fair. Like, have you ever wanted anything really bad? You wanted something, and you're hoping and working and maybe even praying that you'd get it, and then you, you find out somebody else got it, that you don't particularly <clears throat> even like this person. But you did. Or are you gals? I've heard people share this before, you know. You're hanging around, and there's this one girl that uh, is always kind of complaining about her kids. But boom, she gets pregnant again for like the fourth or fifth time, and you and your husband can't. It's not working. Doesn't seem fair, does it? Or maybe for some of the guys or some of the gals here too, you're working real hard. You know you've outperformed all the other people at work, but because this particular guy or that particular gal keeps hanging around with the boss and they play golf together and they go to these seedy clubs together and you don't. They get hired. They get the promotion. Not you. Does Things like that hurt. They make you angry. They make you want to quit. You start thinking, well, I guess it's true. Good guys do finish last. And you have resentment. You want to scream out, it's just not fair. You might even have friends that tell you, well, hey, wake up and smell the coffee. That's life in this big globe. You know, that's the way it works. And, you know, look at Jesus. It doesn't help at all, does it? No, because it's just not fair. 
Well, the psalm we're reading today is in studying today is Psalm 73. The writer is a guy named Asaph. He's a worship leader. In Chronicles, he's called a prophet. And, and you know, what you end up struggling with sometimes, especially as a Christian, is the question of God's fairness, God's goodness. Maybe even to the point of saying, well, is God really good? Well, Asaph was in the same place. He had gotten pushed so hard, had so many disappointments, so many things go awry, so many other people succeed, so many failures on his part, that he starts going, I I don't know. At the beginning of the psalm, he declares God is good. And he gets to the end of the psalm, and you'll see it, he, he declares God is good again. But all the way through, he's working through those issues I talked about, those feelings I talked about, those thoughts I talked about, of the inner life, his soul. And wrestling with that idea, is God really good? Has he been good to me? I put it down, what, he, what, what I think he learns in what's called the big idea of the sermon. If you have your outline, it, it tells you the outline right here in, in the sermon. It says, when life seems unfair, change your point of view. And this is what Asaph does. He, you know, Asaph wrote about 12 of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. And this is one of the key ones that he wrote. And he's saying, I've learned from different points of view, and it's so interesting to look at this psalm that way because it falls really easily into three different points of view he has. One that's off, another one that's off, and then one that's right on. And, And my advice to you is that if you're disappointed, if you're upset, if you're really maybe even depressed, you should really listen closely to what Asaph has to say, because he's been there, done that. And he worked it through in his soul to the place of finding great contentment with God and God's goodness. Point one in your outline reads like this. Get past looking at the they and the them. And to kind of illustrate it, I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll preach this first part of the sermon from this table over here, because the table over here is not in the center. The table over here is off to one side. And that's kind of where Asaph was. He was off to one side. He wasn't centered. And maybe this would typify your life. You don't, you don't feel very centered right now. You know? It, it doesn't, doesn't feel right. Like I said, it's not fair. Well, you're off to one side. You're out of balance. You know, like your car, when, when it's out of alignment, and it seems to pull to the left or pull to the right, or you've got a tire that's bad, and it's hopping and pulling. Yeah, you're out of balance. I'm telling you, it's like Jesus said. What good is it if you gain the whole world and you lose your own soul? Pay attention. God has something to tell you, but you're going to have to do some soul work here. You're going to have to do some thinking. Get a little deeper. And that's what this psalm can help you do. That's what all the psalms are really for. They help you go a little deeper. So let's read how Asaph did this. Ready? Point one, verse one and two. He says, truly, God is good to Israel. So he's not denying the goodness of God. To those who are pure in heart. But, oh man, couldn't hardly find a bigger contrastive conjunctive, which is what the English teacher calls that. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. In other words, I'm having a big problem with this because it doesn't feel like God's so good. But as for me, I talked with a guy uh, this week. 
who's, who um, is a pastor, he loves this psalm a lot. And I said, how come? He says, because at a particular time in my life, this became very, very significant. What do you mean? He says, well, I had some real questions. When my 21-year-old son dropped dead, and no one knew why, he's out of college He's already becoming successful, a very intelligent, good-looking kid, about to get married, and he died. He says, you know what, Marty, I didn't question God's goodness. But I was just like this psalmist. God is good to Israel, but as for me, I'm not feeling it. I don't doubt that he's good, but I don't know what, did I do something? Is there something wrong here? What's going on? So I had to work this through in my own soul. And he said, this psalm really helped me. Really? Well, it makes you want to read on, right? Look at verse 3. So we read on. What does it say? He says, for I was envious. I was envious, he said, of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he mentions here one of his key problems, and one of our key problems is envy. And D is wanting something someone else has, or wanting it like someone else has it. He's envious. And what's so cool here is you'll see in a minute, he, he identifies this core issue. You know, you might be depressed, you might be sad, you might be confused, you might be disappointed with what God's dealt to you. And maybe it's even moved you to the place of depression. You know, this can be one of the causes of depression in your life. Uh, very little credit's given to that our days. You know, the doctor gives you some medication, says, here, you know, this, this is some antidepressant. <laughs> and we think of it as physical, maybe even emotional, but very seldom do we think of it as spiritual. And I think much of the time, that's the key issue. Anyway, he's mentioning it here as his issue. I read a book some time ago. It was called Envy, The Enemy Within. And in this book... Bob Sorge, who is a pastor, associate pastor, senior pastor, worship pastor, starts out chapter one. Here's what it's in, he says. Here's, here's the title of the chapter. The most common problem that nobody has. Because, you know, Andy's like that. You, you, you have a hard time even admitting it to yourself. And what's so cool is here's this guy writing it, singing it in a song. Yeah, I had a problem with envy. He says, I have a problem with envy, a huge problem with envy. Because any problem with envy is a huge problem. Every, envy runs so deep into the inner recesses of my carnal flesh that it's probably a whole lot worse than even I realized. Who of us knows our own hearts anyway? This book exists simply because God has had to speak volumes to me about the envy of my heart. My own struggle with envy was rooted in a certain competitiveness that seems to be native to my personality and my upbringing. I don't know why, I, I, I just know I've been competitive all my life. Whether it was a sports event or a board game or even just a scholastic assignment at school, I've always been motivated to perform at my best. While the pursuit of excellence can be praiseworthy, when it's submitted to God's lordship, Christ's lordship, I've discovered that the desire to excel beyond my friends can actually be the seedbed for envious heart attitudes. 
When I stepped into the arena of the kingdom ministry in church, the old ambitious desires didn't completely fall away, even though I told myself that they had. When I saw my friends enjoying successes that I desired for myself, envy quietly sulked below the surface. Joy, excuse me, envy is the internal pain we feel when someone else seems to be succeeding. I didn't see my envy for a long time. I conveniently kept it hidden. But when God started to reveal it to me, I was appalled at what I saw of the true condition of my heart. Now I'm fervently committed to the radical repentance and the walking in the light that's needed to deal with envy in the crevices of my soul. Asaph goes on, describes his problem like this. Let's read on, starting with verse 4. For they have no pangs. He's looking at these other people he's envious of. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, fat obviously meant something else than it does nowadays, because how could you be fat and sleek at the same time? Now, you know, you're either fat or you're sleek. <laughs> well, fat meant in their days, well-fed. So he was well-fed and sleek. They are not in trouble, as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They seem to have an easy street, right? Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, being well, well fed. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily. They, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. <laughs> Quite imagery there, isn't it? Therefore, this people turn back to them, his people turn back to them, and, and find no fault in them. It's like they're even getting the praise of others, and others recognize them. Ah, oh, man, it hurts you bad, doesn't it? And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Obviously, God wants you to do something about it. God is silent, doesn't do a thing. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Asaph is so fixated on the they and the them, he's so, so uh, gazing at them that it, it pushes his life off-center. One of the most significant things we learn here is that if you want to get depressed, you want to really get down, you want to be in sadness your life, just start looking at they and them. Just start focusing on them. And all they got, and all that's going right, that's a sure way to enter into a lot of pain and sadness in your life. That's why I say here, you've got to get past that. You've got to look beyond that. Um, I have a friend. I, I, I was with him this past week. His name is Steve, and uh, Steve's just a couple of years older than me. And uh, he was talking to me about his daughter. Um, he says, my daughter is going through a rough time. My, my daughter is actually going through a divorce. Oh, Steve, I'm so sorry to hear that. Tell me what happened. He says, well, uh, you know, it's hard to explain. It's, uh, I said, well, have you talked to her about it? He goes, well, Marty, I try. 
But you know how it is when somebody goes through something sometimes, you kind of rationalize, you kind of try and explain it away so that it can sit well with you again. Even though you're not centered, you're over here, you're going to try and explain this. He says it's very clear that in the crevices of her soul, there's very much envy of others. And so this dissatisfaction in her life caused her to, to allow and even move toward this devastating breakup for her, with her and her husband and her kids. He says, so I'm a pastor. I've dealt with this for years with lots of different people. But she won't let me talk about it. It's hidden. Like this guy wrote about in the book. The problem that nobody has. Yeah, we don't even want to admit it to ourselves. He says she won't even admit it to herself, let alone let me try and point out this thing. That's now going to create a lot of problems in her family. So here is my friend just brokenhearted, even in tears, saying, I, I guess I can just pray. That's all I can do. He sees his daughter moving into a, a time of great despair, even depression, and is unable to help because like, she's not like Asaph. She's not like Bob Sorge. They would admit, I got this problem with envy. So, to summarize point one, this first perspective, you've got to get past the they and the them. You first have to admit you've got a problem, and your problem is you focus on they and them. The problem is you're envious. If you can at least admit that, okay, Marty, I've got a problem with envy. Good. Now we're started in the right direction. That's what happens here with Asaph in this first point. He's finally starting to admit, all right, yeah, I, I do have this problem. So he switches. We're going to move to point two, and we're going to move to a different place. Because he really does. He moves to a whole other place. But guess what? He doesn't move to the center. He goes right past to another place. So I'm going over to this table. Hello. Point two. Get past fixating on them and you. Sometimes, it's like when you... When you're trying to avoid the elephant in the room, you just keep fixating on the elephant. It's like he got worse. He went from bad to worse. Okay, well, look at they and them. I'll look at them and what they got and what I got. And it isn't fair. It isn't fair. Because look what happens. Rest of, point, to, point two, starting verse 13. He mentions this thing vain. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Oh my gosh, I've been good for nothing. <laughs> verse 14. For all the day long, I, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You know, all things, they, everything seems to go right for them, and all I got are problems. And you know what? I've been trying to be good, and it hasn't paid off. It's not working. You know, it's kind of like God didn't keep his end of the bargain. I've been a good boy. I've been a good girl. I did what I'm supposed to do. Lord, come on, where's the payback here? They get paid. They get it good. They have it nice. I get it bad. This is making no sense, Lord. Do you catch it? Do you feel with it, Asaph? That's what he's feeling. Have you ever felt that? I remember this word vain. In vain have I been good. Really pops out at me because... Uh, 
Maybe some of you remember my story. When I was in high school, I was a real bad boy. Definite bad boy. Got kicked out, got in trouble, rested, stuff like that. I was a bad boy. Okay, then my college years, after I became a Christian at 18, I was a really good boy. Remember the Jesus movement, the Jesus jacket, Jesus loves you. I was a really good boy. Do you think in college I was ever tempted to go back and live like a bad boy, like in high school? Oh my gosh, yes. All the time. Go back to chasing girls and drinking and smoking dope. and Absolutely. Well, then why didn't you? Here's why that word vain. Because I had been there, done that, and my life was vain. I was unhappy, even though I chased happiness. I was unfulfilled, even though I was trying always to be filled with fun and stuff. And so when I would be frustrated, like God's not paying me back for being so good, I'd realize, well, the answer is not back there. That is meaningless, stupidity, vain. That's why I left being a non-Christian and became a Christian, to find meaning, purpose, fulfillment in my life. And I'm finding that. But the bigger question is this. Am I just following God for his blessings? Asaph, are you? Or am I following God for God? Literally, the doubts like that, and doubts can be a good thing, cause me to even go deeper with the Lord. Because really, when it gets down to it, you listening to me now? When it really gets down to it, you're either going to go deeper or go away. Get out of balance. That's where Asaph said. Either I'm going to try and find it my own way, do it my own. Vanity is found when you try and do it yourself. Look, look, look at verse 15. He goes on to say this. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, he said, if I just talked about this to everybody, they'd, be, they'd realize that I'm betraying God. It's like a betrayal to talk like God's not good. But I'm feeling it. I remember talking to someone the other day. Uh, they were talking about going on vacation, and when they got to on vacation... Um, you know how it is when you fly a long distance sometimes. Let's say you're flying to Florida and you get to Florida. And uh, anybody here, raise your hand if you've ever lost your luggage. I've lost mine a few times. And your luggage ends up in California or something. And so the luggage comes off the baggage thing. And the person says, oh, my luggage is here. God is good. Wait a minute. If your luggage had not been here, would God have still been good? Is God good just because he's good to you? Does God change when circumstances or situations change with you? This is an age-old question. goes way back to the book of Job, one of the first books ever written in the Bible. And Job concluded, well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Remember that? It's all about the goodness of God. Do you serve him just for his gifts or for him? It's going to be one or the other. So here's Asaph, still off center, and he says this, verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, this got him thinking, you know, 
It seemed to be a wearisome task. Wearisome. Didn't know how to get past it. A wearisome task. Oh, I can feel that too. Sometimes you just kind of get get sick of it all and you're like, oh, whatever, you know. <laughs> That's not a good place for your soul to live. When you live in the whatever, you're stuck. You're off center. Yeah, I'm not saying there's no mystery in life. In preaching about this idea and this idea that often envy causes in us, the old preacher D.L. Moody used to tell a, um, a parable, or I guess you could call it like a fable. It's a fable of two eagles. And uh, one eagle could soar up high and fly up in the wind currents and, you know, just sail along. And the other eagle would have a hard time getting up there and struggle. And one day, the eagle that was on the ground watching this guy, in the, the other eagle in the sky, and he envied that eagle so much that when a hunter came by with a bow and arrow, he said to the hunter, do you think you could pull back and hit that eagle up there? And the hunter said, Yeah, I could, but I need some more feathers for my arrow. Okay, said the eagle on the ground. Here's a feather. He pulls a feather out of his wing, and he gives it to the the hunter. Hunter rigs it all up on his arrow, pulls back, lets the arrow fly. Oh, it missed. Didn't quite go high enough. You think you could hit him if you tried again, said the eagle. And the hunter said, oh, yeah, I, I need more feathers, though. Okay, pulls out another feather. Well, this process went on and on till the feathers were almost gone from the eagle's wings and he couldn't fly at all. And the hunter pulled back his arrow and killed him. D.L. Moody would tell that story and say, that's what it's like when you envy. You're hurting nobody but yourself and you're headed toward your own destruction. Yeah, envy is not a good place for your soul to be. And we get to this part of the story and it seems so depressing, doesn't it? To the point where he says, eh, I'm just tired of thinking about it. Wearisome. He calls it a wearisome task. But then the next verse, everything changes. He changes his point of view. He gets centered. Look what he says. Verse 17. He says this. Until. In other words, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I entered into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He says, I started thinking a little deeper about this when I connected with the Lord. Or then I went to church. Or then I went to the synagogue. Or then I went to the temple. Or then I allowed the Word of God to speak into my life. I actually got down deep in my soul. And I looked at the crevices where this envy was hidden. And I started being honest with myself and honest with God. Honest to God, the title of the series. And I started seeing the truth. Look, look, look what he goes on to talk about. Verses um, 18 through 22. Truly, you set them in a slippery place. You made them fall, fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a, in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You know, here today, gone tomorrow, just whoosh, smoke. 
when, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. I think that last verse kind of sums it up. Well, what does he mean? I was like a beast. Well, a beast doesn't consider their soul. A beast can't have an inner life. A beast doesn't think like that. A beast is thinking about two things, right? Food and sex. I mean, like, that's a beast. That's all they think about. What am I going to eat? He says, I was acting like a beast. He's referring back to the last few verses we just read. He says, I was thinking about just stuff, just life. I was being like a materialist. I wasn't looking at the soul. And and look, look what he goes on to say next. He says, verses 23 and 24, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Oh, I do have a soul. And you hold my right hand. And you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me to your glory. I start thinking about you. I start fixating on you instead of on them, instead of on me and my despicable situation and their luxurious situation. And I start focusing on the Lord. It's like when uh, Peter was walking on the water and he kept his eyes on the Lord, he could keep walking. But when he turned away, oh, he starts sinking down. It's the same with you and me. You're going down because you keep fixating on the world. You keep fixating on people. You keep fixating on what you have or don't have compared to them. It's like you're making all these comparisons. Stop it, he says. And I realized I was just like a beast. Now I'm getting my head about me realizing, no, it's the Lord. He's right there at my right hand. His counsel is with me. I do have a soul. And God speaks to my soul. I got to listen to my soul. Listen to God. When I went into this, until I went into the sanctuary of God, he says, Nothing made sense until I got right with God. Then look at verses 25 and 26, the heart of the psalm. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? God, I really don't have nothing without you anyway. And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Key, key, key. Nothing on earth he desires besides you. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Ooh, powerful words, right? I have a friend who's been through uh, quadruple bypass, and then he got cancer, prostate cancer, and he's been through, you know, the 40 treatments where they shoot a laser into your prostate, guys, turn it into a prune. That's what his words were. He says, my prostate probably looks like a prune because it's hit so much radiation. He says, but I don't have cancer now. But he says, something changed for me. And I was talking about this with him, this, this, this psalm. And he said, I love Psalm 73. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Marty, you've never had the privilege of laying on a hospital bed thinking that you're going to die. He says, I have. Twice. When you're laying on a hospital bed and you think, well, I'm going to die. This is the end. I finally reached the end. He says, you start thinking differently. And when the psalmist says, who do I have in heaven but you? You start thinking, yeah, that's all I got. It's me and him. You know what? For everybody in this room, it'll come down to that someday. It's you and him. And he says, so I start thinking, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. So he says, I start thinking like this. If God is the creator and sustainer of all life, if there is no reality outside God, he is the inventor and creator of reality, then for me, 
not live connected to him is to live outside reality in some kind of fantasy world where we compare each other and we judge each other. He says, it's all stupid. And you're laying in the hospital bed thinking you might die, realizing I'm living for a lot of stupidity. Because reality is him. So the big question comes, am I living for him, to be with him, to enjoy him, or for something less? Which is really what the psalmist is trying to say here, which is why my friend loves this psalm so much. He says, and there's nothing on earth that I desire. Can you say that? Beside you? Nothing I desire beside God. He says, not that I don't care about anything else or I don't want anything else, but do I want God most? Well, then having cancer, then having heart disease is a whole different perspective because I can see it from God's point of view. This word heart and this word fail. Heart, the psalmist seems to mean it's like it's going to be an emotional thing. It's going to deal with your feelings. And, and fail means you, you finally come to a place of exhaustion. It's, it's, it, you, you can read through this psalm and see Asaph is struggling with what we commonly call depression. Despondency, depression, whatever you want to call it. Maybe you've struggled with it yourself. I just want to say something real clear here. They could have physical causes or emotional causes or, like I said, spiritual causes. Unbelief does nothing. Listen to me closely. Unbelief does nothing to resist depression. Doesn't do a thing. Just goes right along with it. Gets you way out of balance. Way out of balance. Belief resists. Oh, thank God. That's what Asaph's saying. Believing in you, being with you, is my only hope of sanity, my only hope of being not plummeted down by all the terrible things and the heartaches and the problems and the disappointments and the unfairness. Belief resists it. Unbelief doesn't. Just goes with the flow and says, yeah, whatever. Poor me. It's not working out. Verses 27, 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. That's how it's going to end. Verse 28 now. But for me, oh, but for me. Isn't that what he said in verse 2? But as for me, same thing. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I almost went down. He's saying, but now he says it again. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So what's so cool is that we see Asaph work through the whole dilemma and struggle, maybe like you, with God about why God? I can't believe God. Come on, Lord. What are you doing? Where are you? Come on. Aren't you going to be fair? Why isn't this fair? Why do you give him? You don't give to me. And how come I've been such a good boy, but a good girl, but I don't get, and they get, like I don't get. And finally comes place, you know what I concluded? I just want to be near the Lord. The nearness of God is my good. Oh my goodness. Not only is God good, But your only chance of good is near him. 
Do you, do you feel this yet? Do you get this? The nearness of God is my good. Or like another psalm says, the goodness of God is my strength. Let me read this to you to conclude. I'm out of time. I was reading an article in a magazine this week. It's called World Magazine, a news magazine. That the Marvin Alasky, the editor, is a Christian. And at the end of here, he gives an editorial thing he often writes. And he's talking about um, several things, but one of the things is an interview he had with Johnny Erickson Tata. I don't know if you've ever heard her speak or, written, or read books written by her. She's a, a girl uh, that, that's a quadriplegic. You know, in other words, she's paralyzed from here down. And um, it happened when she was um, just 17 years old, Chesapeake Bay. She dove in the water, and it was too shallow, and she broke her neck. So he's talking with her about that, saying uh, that little mistake has left her in a wheelchair for now 50-plus years. It also changed her, uh, she said, in an interview we had almost five years ago now, from a person who had confused the abundant Christian life with the great American dream. What do you mean? Well, I was a Christian, and I thought that I would marry a wonderful man someday, and he would make $250,000 a year. That's pretty optimistic. And and we'd have 2.5 children. It was very much about my life. And about me. What could God do for me to make my life wonderful? He goes on to interview her some more. And he thought, well, what, what would your life actually have been like had you not broken your neck? Johnny replied, well, I don't, I don't say this in front of many people. Some audiences just can't handle it. But I think I can say it to you. I believe what happened to me was an example of Hebrews chapter 12, the discipline of the Lord. I do. I really believe that. I've had Christians ask, well, how can you, Johnny, say that that's true of God and how he treated you? That's awful for you to say he would discipline you by breaking your neck and making you a quadriplegic. And she says, no, 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 no. Read Hebrews chapter 12. It says, God disciplines those whom he loves. Had I not broken my neck, I'd probably be on my second divorce by now, maxing out my husband's credit cards, planning my next ski vacations. I wouldn't be here extolling the glories of the gospel and the power of God to help people smile even when things aren't working out. It's not in spite of my problems. It's because of them that I'm here. Did you hear that? It's not in spite of my problems that you're going to do. It's not in spite of the difficulties. It's not because it's all going to work out. No. It's because it doesn't work out. And you do have problems that she's saying I ended up like. Whenever we think our lives are are not working out, we, we tend to blame God. But who knows better than God how much adversity we need to build our character? Who knows better than God how to glorify himself through our life? Who knows better than God to fit us for heaven? Wow. 
quite a statement from a, a lady who's been a quadriplegic for 50 plus years. A lot of truth there, isn't it? I think she's kind of like Asaph. She's kind of worked through some of the issues of what happens when life doesn't seem to be fair? You break your neck at 17 years old and you live in a wheelchair for 50 years. And you can't have any kids and you can't have a normal family. She says, well, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. There's a plan of God that's bigger than me. And my life is really not about me. And the nearness of God has become my goodness. Has that happened to you yet? Have you come to that place in your Christian life? Are you still living on the surface? Or will you go that deep in your soul? One thing about hardship, one thing about difficulty in your life, it makes you go deep or you run off. I'm challenging you. I am challenging you like this psalm. Would you go deep? Would you struggle with the Lord about it? You know, I'm going to pray a prayer. I don't expect everybody here to say, okay, I prayed it. It's all done now. I took care of that. Now, you'll struggle with it tomorrow and the next day because it's, it's the soul. And we tend to be rebellious and independent. And it's God saying, come near, come near. Take my right hand. Take my counsel, like he says here. When I went into the house of God, this is what I began to understand. God was right there. He wants to be near me. All these things that are drawing me near to him and him to me. At this point, I need to pray with you. Why don't we stand up and pray? Lord, we come before you on our feet saying, here I stand. Maybe you need to say, Lord, forgive me. Go ahead. Maybe you're like way over at this table. You say, oh, Lord, I am so out of balance. No wonder I'm depressed. No wonder I'm confused. Oh, it might be physical. It might be emotional too, but clearly spiritually. I'm like blaming you. I'm mad at you. Forgive me, Lord, for questioning these things. I'm just trying to grow. Please help me understand. Please help me. Can you pray that kind of prayer? Lord, forgive me and help me. Can you admit? Lord, I'm envious. Forgive me for envy, the sin of envy. Can you say it? Can you mean it? Lord, forgive me for the sin of envy. I keep comparing myself. Maybe you're like me. You're kind of a second-born child, and it just comes easy to you. You have a competitive spirit. You tend to just compare all the time. I got that problem. Lord, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Lord, I want to be centered. Can you say that? Lord, I want to be centered on you. I want to understand what Asaph understood. I want to be like that. The nearness of God is my good. I don't want anything on earth more than I want you. There's the key. But Lord... The wanting is so big in me. I don't know how it could ever change. Could you change me, Lord? Could you change me to want you more than I want anything else? I know it's the only way I'm going to find sanity and peace and not live a vain life. So, here we are again. Humbled before the Lord saying, Okay, Lord, here it is. It's me. Take it all. Take my life. Make it what you want it to be. I'm saying that I need to grow. My soul needs to work its way into you. 
Help me massage, change, think, rethink to the place where it's all about you and me, Lord.